much for joining us. This is Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. I'm a clinical psychologist, leadership consultant, and a really big fan of you getting to fulfill your life purpose. I want you to get unstuck and unlock your potential relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and vocationally. Thanks for joining us and let's get started. Welcome to Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. And today my guest is Satchel Stilwell. He is a mental health counselor in shout out South Lake, Texas, an adjunct professor at the King's University, where we're both adjunct professors, and that's how we met. And he is the founder of First Light Counseling. And he is going to share from a family perspective of when there is a family member with an addiction, how do we walk with them? And he's going to share some of his personal story and how he navigated that and will peel out some of the beneficial keys that could help your family or loved one as you may be walking with somebody with an addiction. Addiction. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm so honored to be on this podcast. This is the first podcast I've ever done. So that's exciting. Um, you know, I, I wanted to start with this idea that uh, one out of every 11 individuals that tries marijuana becomes addicted to marijuana. And so I tell people a lot of times that I was one of the lucky ones because um, <laughs> that's sort of the start of my story, my uh, my sordid past, I guess you could say. But it actually goes back before then, because um, I come from three generations of divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were divorced when I was about three or four. My grandparents were divorced and my uh, actually my great grandmother was married 13 times and she lived in Kentucky. And so back then that was not that uncommon actually. Um, but long story short, um, there's a whole lot of history of divorce in my family. And that was a, that was a central trauma that, um, I experienced when I was younger, even though when it happened, I wasn't really able to fully understand it. You know, I don't have a, a clear recollection of when it happened, but I do remember when my mom got remarried when I was probably between four and five. My older brother does have memories of that. And my older brother was also um, divorced from his first wife. So um, I have a passion um, to keep couples together. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge thing. Um, that's one of the big reasons why I became a therapist in the first place. But also, um, my, my story um, is something that I utilize all the time. Mm-hmm. So I try to be guarded with my self-disclosure. I try not to self-disclose too much, but when appropriate, I do. Mm-hmm. And so um, the first time I ever used was when I was about 14. I drank alcohol mm-hmm. um, and my older brother was having a party, his older friends, and uh, that was the first time I drank alcohol. And then when I was 15, I, I, I smoked pot for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. And I tell people all the time, it's like, everything changed for me. Like there was like this door and it opened and all of a sudden that's all I wanted to do. It became my obsession, you know? And so when people talk about marijuana, not being a gateway drug, I just laugh at them because I'm like, "Mm." well, it was for me (laughs) because, um, it, I wouldn't even necessarily say, and and I get what people are saying, you know, it's a gateway to other drugs. And that I think is also true, but for me, it was a gateway into a whole different lifestyle. So, um, I started actively pursuing sins, you know, uh, premarital sex, alcohol use, uh, drug use, and pot led to other substances as well. And it took me until I was about 22 years old and doing some therapy to realize the whole reason I was involved in that in the first place. Mm. And 
I think that we're all born with this giant hole in our heart. And I think we all try to fill that with something. And for me, what that was, um, it was, it was a father wound. It was a huge gaping father wound in my chest. And, um, there was, there was really two reasons why I started using number one is to fill that up. You know, I was trying to grasp for anything I could do to fill that up. Number two, and I came to this conclusion way later in life was that, um, I was trying to get attention Mm. and I didn't receive the attention I wanted or needed from my earthly father, my biological father. Um, I did get that from my stepfather growing up and I, I have a great relationship with both of them now, but at the time, uh, I wasn't getting that attention. And so it's kind of like that whole idea of any publicity is good publicity, even if it's bad. Right. So I think in my mind, when I was in that stage, I was thinking if I can get bad attention, it would be better than no attention. And that's what I did. And so it led me down this really kind of dark path. And uh, for eight years, um, I was smoking marijuana every single day, Mm -hmm. five to eight times a day. And um, I actually been hospitalized two times because of just marijuana use. And that shocks people because they're like, well, you weren't doing anything else. Was it laced with something? Was it? No, it wasn't. (laughs) It was strictly that. And it was sleep deprivation. And my brain just does not respond well to that chemical. So my wife and I joke around about this all the time because she'll ask me, she'll say, Satchel, like, what if we was legalized? Like, would you do it? Like, if it was legal? And I'm like, no, (laughs) because it makes me go crazy. It's not, um, it's not good for me. Mm -hmm. And I think the Lord has this amazing way of um, changing our desires. As we start to pursue him, he starts to change our appetites Mm -hmm. and, it was a long struggle for me because I was, I would say I was saved probably in fifth or sixth grade. Um, that's when I first accepted Jesus into my heart. But I also went through a long period of doubt. And then, and, and then my usage history also, you know, from when I was about 15 till I was about, you know, 21, 22. And um, I started going to Gateway Church. And shout out to Gateway Church, (laughs) Um, listening to Pastor Robert's sermons. And I have to give him so much credit because um, I'd grown up in an Episcopal church that Mm -hmm. was like stand up, sit down, very regimented, very like structured. Mm -hmm. Um, Not a lot of realism from the pulpit, not a lot of testimony. We didn't talk Mm -hmm. about the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. you know, so I wasn't aware of all this, um, all these concepts yeah. and, and, and really the whole charismatic nature of the church. Mm-hmm. So when I started going to gateway with my wife's parents, we weren't married at the time. We were just dating. Um, I start listening to pastor Robert and I'm paying attention, you know, for the first time and I'm, I'm engaged. I'm like, mm-hmm. hmm, what's this dude? He's, he's something different. He's bringing something different. And what it was is he's talking about his testimony. He's talking about his history with, with drug usage and alcohol and, um, and how he got saved. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I started to notice that I was just getting wrecked. Mm-hmm. Like every Sunday I would go, cause I lived out of town. I lived in Austin and she lived up here. So I would come to visit. Right. Mm-hmm. And I tell people at that time in my life, I was living a double life. Mm-hmm. I was one person with her yeah. and her family. And then I was a total other person when I would go back to school in Austin. Um, so I would have this reprieve over the weekend where I wouldn't be using, 
and I would get wrecked on Sunday. And I knew kind of in my spirit that like, by the time I got back, I was going to start again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just kept happening. And that kept happening. I remember like being in tears, one of the, one of the sermons he gave, and um, I felt like he was talking directly at me. Wow. And um, it that happened again and again, and I kept getting convicted. Um, and so as I, as I had, you know, I would have stints of sobriety. Um, one time I had about two years of sobriety and then went right back. And it's funny how Satan works mm-hmm. <laughs> and how active he can be because literally the day I moved into Austin, I moved into a one bedroom apartment and the cable guy came over. And at that point I had been sober for two years. I hadn't touched anything. I was just, I was on a great track. I made the national Dean's list at a 4.0. I was like, in the best state I'd been in in a long time. And uh, cable guy busts out a bag of weed. And he's like, Hey, man, you you want to, you want to spark up? Is it cool if I and I was like, let's go. And so my my usage started right then again, and was every day for the next probably two years. <sighs> and so um, all that, you know, culminated in ultimately, my who's my wife now finding out we mm. dated for five years and she had no idea that I used whoa I kept it hidden and when I said I lived a double life I really wow. I really was yeah. and I was really good at it yeah <laughs> but you know um I think it's Proverbs 10 9 that talks about you know those that walk the crooked paths uh shall be found out and mm. those that walk the straight paths shall walk securely and my great-grandmother used to always say what's done in the dark will always come to light mm. right and um that's exactly what happened. Yeah. My sin was exposed. Her family found out about it. She found out about it. Yeah. Everybody was heartbroken. Yeah. And I remember walking in and it wasn't like an intervention per se, but came into the living room and her mom was huddled over, you know, she had been crying. You know, she looked like somebody had punched her in the gut and her, mm. her sister was over on the other couch. Same thing. Mm. Very emotional. Um, and my girlfriend at the time, who was about to be my fiance, uh, ironically, we had just gone ring shopping the week before all this came oh. out. <laughs> so everybody's wrecked, you know, and I came in and, and her dad's pacing up and down. And, and I'm like, Whoa, like, is he going to hit me? Like, what, mm-hmm. what's going to happen here? You know? Mm-hmm. And um, he's just, you know, so angry, but I can tell he's, he's, he's thinking, you know, and um, it was in that moment that I was presented with this, this, truth this boundary really which was satchel you can either get into na and start going to meetings and get sober and you get to keep your fiance your job your apartment Mm -hmm. or you can keep getting high but you're going to lose your apartment you're going to lose your job and you're going to lose your fiance because and her family and her family there's a huge support system yeah huge huge support system and now even even much more so but um funny thing was i was working for her dad at the time (gasps) Yeah, you would definitely lose your job. That makes sense. Yeah, I have my mom paying for my apartment. I was working for her dad. Everybody was kind of combined as far as we're setting a hard boundary with them because this had been kind of going on. This is this was a recurring issue, um, and everybody was fed up. So let me pause you because I think you're making a great point. A lot of families feel bad. And so they're like, you always have the person that wants to enable while Mm -hmm. everybody else wants to set the boundary. And for the merciful heart, which I would probably be that merciful, like, oh, we don't want it to be too hard on him. We don't want to take things away, you know, blah, 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 mercy, grace. What was your experience with having everybody in a unified, healthy boundary? 
it was the best experience of my life because mm. it's what saved me. And what's interesting about that, you brought up the concept of grace. Um, I had never received grace in my life mm. the way I did when that happened because mm. I was forgiven and I was able to choose a different route and her dad did not see me any different after that her mom did not see me any different after that they never brought it up again it was like literally as far as the east is from the west wow and that was that was a profound spiritual experience too because it's like you hear about that concept in church grace 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 you know and I knew what it was but I'd never been given it in Mm -hmm. such a profound way and that I mean it was incredible but it it was um, you know, luckily for me, I finally had reached the end of the road. Mm-hmm. I realized that I was going to lose everything if I kept going the direction I was going. Um, and if I didn't have that support in place, I don't think I would have made it for yeah. through, through those first few months. Cause the first six months of that were really hard, Yeah, you know, cause I was using this substance to cope. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely. It was, mm-hmm. it was my anxiety, management mechanism that yeah. I was using for, yeah, for eight years, you know, yeah. so for social situations and just in general, um, whenever my anxiety, I, I could just get high, I could just go to that. And yeah. so coming out of that, you don't have that tool anymore. Yeah. So what are you going to do? And all these emotions are hitting you at once. Yeah, exactly. And you're completely inept. You have no idea how to deal with any of it. Mm-hmm. And I work with, you know, I've worked, um, I worked at a treatment center for seven years uh, from 2014 to you know 2020, and that's one of the things I saw time and time again. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to explain because these guys coming in, very much stories like mine. They started using when they were really young, and, yeah. and some of them were way older than me when they came mm-hmm. into treatment. So um, these patterns were even more hardline established, yeah, entrenched. Yeah, and they had to kind of. Um, they had to relearn everything. Yeah. I, I call it, I had a word that I used to use. I call it emotional atrophy. Mm-hmm. And I explain it to people like somebody getting out of a coma, right? Yeah. It's like, you wouldn't get out of a coma and then the doctors say, okay, it's time for you to run a marathon. Exactly. No, you get out of a coma and they're like, I got to teach you how to eat. I got to mm-hmm. teach you how to breathe. Yeah. I got to teach you how to, you know, get up again and, mm-hmm. and learn how to walk. You know, it's all incremental, small steps, Yeah. you know? Yeah, it's so good. So I think it's really important because I work with a lot of families that they have, um, each person has their own view of what mercy is or what grace looks like in a situation. Mm-hmm. And many times it sounds like we need to just keep kind of enabling and, and they wouldn't use that word enable, right? Mm-hmm. Like we just yeah. need to keep giving mercy, give grace, right. keep, you know, helping them, supporting them. But it sounds like you're peeling apart. They gave you grace in a way that was relational, mm-hmm. but yet the boundary was still firm Absolutely. that this behavior is not acceptable. Yeah. Can you help illustrate for families what that might look like? Absolutely. That's a question that I got asked so many times running the family program when I did. And um, people would ask me a lot of times, you know, what's the difference between loving them Mm -hmm. and um, holding a boundary with them? Yeah. Where, where is that separating line? And I would always say, first of all, we, we like to use the word disable mm-hmm. rather than enable come on because enabling yeah. what that really means is i'm doing something to help you i'm providing you with something that's going to help you do something mm-hmm. right what we're really doing is we're disabling yeah so when we're doing things like we're paying the cell phone bill we're paying the the car note we're mm-hmm. paying your uh your lease your mortgage or whatever um 
all these things are disabling the individual. Come on. Because if you're paying for that, they're using their other money to pay for drugs or alcohol. Absolutely. And um, that's a pattern that's so common because, and it's easy. It's really easy as a family member to make that step or to take that step because you think that you're helping. Mm -hmm. You think, and also an important distinction too, is that it's not ever malicious. It's not a malicious intent. I I don't look at the mothers, the fathers, the wives, or the husbands of the people that I treated as you're, you're doing harm, but I had to tell them that mm-hmm. I say your love is killing them. Yeah. Even well, though it's not intentional, right. you're a good person. You love them, but exactly. it has a consequence. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's leading to this. Yeah. Um, and I, I've, I've said it just like that. Mm-hmm. I remember I had a client a long time ago um, and his grandmother, um, she was just total enabler the, mm-hmm. the, the classic case you know and she was sending them cartons of cigarettes in the mail and you know to treatment and like trying to see if she could send them money and all this and I had to call her because I lived way out in California and, and I literally told her I said you're killing him mm. you're killing your grandson wow and it's some people have to hear it like that yeah you know it has to be it has to be delivered like that, yeah. you know? So if somebody's listening, how would a family member know, maybe I'm on the line of that enabling, mm-hmm. which before I just thought was a good parent. I was loving, I'm supportive. I right. want to be there for them. Well, how would they know what's veering into enabling or disabling? Um, the, the, I think the separation is, and it's what I used to tell people, right? Um, if you're spending your money trying to help that person get sober, that's not disabling them or enabling them, right? So for instance, if you're helping to pay for treatment, mm-hmm. you know, um, you're helping to pay for sober living, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you're helping them with groceries after they get into sober living, but doing it in a way where you're not just shoveling cash into their account or handing them cash, right? right. That Those are ways that um, are kind of on that edge, but I would say those are helpful right? Things that are, that are promoting recovery are helpful things. Those mm-hmm. are loving, helpful things. On the other side of that is kind of what I mentioned, which is like, if you're paying legal fees, you're playing, mm-hmm. you know, the probation and, and you're, you're taking care of all these needs that are really their responsibility. That's when we moved into disabling. Yeah. 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 Because what it's doing is it's taking away the natural cause and effect mm-hmm. that you're protecting them and insulating them from the reality of what their addiction is costing, not only themselves, but everybody around them. And if there's not a natural cause and effect, human nature wants pleasure more than we want discipline. And so like he's saying in his relationship with his family, that when that boundary was placed and there was unity in it, and he knew he couldn't kind of manipulate that. Right there was a what response inside of you as far as to the grace or to the boundary to the boundary there was really submission Mm. i mean i I realized that i was out of options Mm -hmm. um and i always say i mean there's always a choice sure so i could have easily had progressed with um my lifestyle but it was also a value judgment based decision Mm -hmm. you know i had to look at things in both hands and say, do I value this more or do I value that more? Mm-hmm. And, and that was ultimately what did it for me. Cause it got to a point where like, I love weed. I love getting high mm-hmm. and it was part of my life for a long time, but I loved the good things that were coming into my life more than I loved that. Yeah. You know, and that's not everyone's story, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just my story, you know? Um, because 
the the big book uh the 12 steps um alcoholics anonymous talks about there's this line in there that says frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices oh that's good and i love that say I, it again frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices i love that word i love that those words <laughs> because what they mean is that there's no um sort of environmental motivation that mm -hmm. would be strong enough to cause somebody to stop if they're truly an alcoholic or if they're truly an addict yeah okay so you pleading and crying right. getting upset it's right. not really going to change no the lectures losing kids losing jobs losing houses when mm -hmm. we talk about a true addict or a true alcoholic in a lot of cases all that stuff is not enough to make them stop yeah and there's there's a trap there because the family members they often um, sort of combine the two, mm -hmm. right? And I always encourage to, to focus on the distinction between the addiction or the disease, the disease of alcoholism versus the individual. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to separate and, and parse those out because if you don't, you're going to hate that individual. Exactly. And they couldn't give grace like your family did. It, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so it's like that old saying, like, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. Mm -hmm. Same thing. It's like, I can have hatred and anger and animosity towards the disease of addiction and alcoholism, but I can love the person suffering from that disease. Mm -hmm. And I can carry both of those at the same time. Yeah. Right. And setting the boundary with the addiction mm -hmm. and still loving the person. Absolutely. Like, I love you no matter what choice you make. I love Danny Silk and how he talks about boundaries really, really, really well, if you haven't seen his work. Mm -hmm. um, and so he would just say, hey, no problem, but here's the natural cause and effect. And I'm not going to rescue you right. from the cause and effect. I love you. And that's how we're going to have relational equity yep. is that there will be these boundaries to protect Mm -hmm. instead of me thinking this blurred grace that I'm just going to let you do whatever you want because that's what love is or setting such firm boundaries that there's no relational equity and I just am filled with so much resentment mm -hmm. absolutely yeah yeah I like to use this this model I've developed it's called BEX and BEC and S because um, what it stands for is boundaries expectations consequences okay so I use that with my families as working with young kids, but also working with somebody coming out of addiction, right? Mm -hmm. I have a boundary. Okay. Mm -hmm. You violate that boundary. Something happens, right? Yeah. I also have an expectation. I have an expectation that you're not going to violate that boundary in that way. Mm -hmm. If you do though, there's a consequence associated with that. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you have to really incorporate all three of those, right? Yeah. Cause it's great to have a boundary. And I love, Henry Cloud's work on boundaries. I mean, all mm -hmm. these people have done awesome work on boundaries. So, I mean, we, sure. we literally, we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Mm -hmm. But if I have a boundary and I let you keep violating it and I let you keep coming in, mm -hmm. how effective is that boundary? Right. And that's what I got to see for seven years again and again and again, you know, mm -hmm. like I keep letting them move back in, you know, like I had this one grandmother, right? She would let her son, he was a heroin user. She would let him live in her house and sleep on her couch in her living room mm -hmm. um, because she knew that there was a high likelihood that he would overdose. And I remember asking her in the family program, I said, okay, look, let me, let me get this straight. So you feel better about him overdosing and dying in your house than overdosing and dying on the street. Think about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a little bit 
insane, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's the same, it's the same outcome. Yeah. But you feel like, or you think that you have more control over that situation because it's happening within your own domain rather than out somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so the addict and the alcoholic can kind of use that, that mm-hmm. plight as mm-hmm. a manipulation tactic. Yeah. Right. How do you think families get manipulated through somebody who may be dealing with an addiction? How much time do you have? <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> uh, it happens in so many ways. Um, most of the time it's financial. Okay. Uh, it kind of all comes back to financial because um you have to think of an addiction or alcoholism as something that cannot continue to exist Mm -hmm. without somebody helping it to exist. Um, I'll give you the the three C's of Al-Anon, right? Uh, Didn't cause it. I didn't cause the addiction. Mm -hmm. I can't cure it, the addiction, and I can't control it, their addiction. Mm -hmm. I actually, we added a fourth C to that, right? Which is, but you can contribute to it, Mm. right? And again, it's different than causation because I'm not saying you did this, mom, you did this, dad, you caused it because you did this and this and this. But I'm saying once you become aware that this is a disease that this person has, you're then doing things to actively contribute to the progression of that disease. Mm -hmm. And it is a progressive disease. So it gets worse and worse and worse as it goes. So I think the hardest thing is that most families approaching this for the first time with their loved one have no idea about any of this information. Yeah. And so they're not even aware of the ways that they're contributing, Mm -hmm. but most of the time it's financial. Um, It could also be providing a living space. It could Mm -hmm. be providing food. um, Mm -hmm. And I think maybe even emotionally as well. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I've seen psychology be used in ways that are um, like people use nuggets of pop psychology and they'll use it in almost to enable like, well, I was abused or I had this background or my parents didn't understand me. And so they perpetually stay the victim instead of now saying, okay, that event happened, but I'm responsible for today. And so simultaneously, even as families, if you have a loved one who's gone through something traumatic or painful or a childhood divorce or something that's happened, that's real, but it also doesn't give permission Mm. to abort the uh, adulting that needs to happen today. There's still cause and effect, and there's still boundaries of growing up and being a mature contributing adult, because lots of us come from backgrounds of abuse and we don't have to, uh, develop into manipulation or addiction or any other toxic behavior. And so I want to alleviate some of the family members listening that just because the person with addiction may have had a trauma background, you may even feel guilt of like, you know, there's a family triangling of a overbearing parent and then the permissive parent, and they're trying to kind of power struggle through giving the child the best um, upbringing, or there's going between homes or whatever, you may have natural feelings of regret about that, but please don't go into guilt and enabling as if that's going to correct it today. Many families go into this manipulative trap on accident because they feel bad for what's happened in the past. And so they're enabling things in the present as a way to almost assuage our guilt and responsibility. Instead of saying me really loving you is yes, honoring your trauma, honoring what you've gone through, but not enabling you to stay six years old today. 
I need you to now grow up and now have maturity in your life because I love you. I don't want you to stay a child forever and abort the progression of adulthood in your life that you're perpetually an adolescent. And our family just kind of tolerates that because we feel guilty or responsible for something that may have happened in our family. That is not love. Love is to say, let's do family therapy. Let's do a trauma center that really focus on creating new family norms instead of allowing and enabling things that are guilt-based or manipulation-based that keep people stuck and frozen in their past instead of helping them progress into the present. So if you are working with a family that maybe they feel guilty, there's been a divorce or a trauma or abuse or overbearing parent, and now the other parent feels guilty and responsible, how would you help them kind of transition into seeing, yes, that's real and it's valid and it needs to be processed, Mm -hmm. but today you actually have an adult and how do we deal with that as a family? That's such a good question. And I was just waiting to interject. Please. (laughs) So um, one of the things when I work with any family, but especially when we're talking about addiction or alcoholism is um, I, you, you mentioned this idea of ownership, right? Mm-hmm. I like this emotional ownership and I've at my office, I wish I brought it with me, but I've got this board and it's got six feelings on it. Pain, shame, anger, fear, guilt, loneliness, joy. Maybe go slower for yeah. our audience. Wait, wait, Pain, shame, guilt, loneliness, where am I at? Fear, mm-hmm. did I say that? Anger. Okay. That's yeah, six, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, and and what the first thing I want to show, um, kind of like basic, just like building blocks, is I'll have a, a family member identify an emotion. Mm-hmm. What are you feeling right now? They'll look at the boards and none of that. I don't none of that. None that are on your board. I was like, okay, we'll try. You know, just try. And they'll identify one, right? And I'll ask them, I'll say, what's causing that, right? And when they reflect back, um, I would say 99% of the time, it's not about them. Mm-hmm. It's about the other person. Mm-hmm. And they will make a statement like, I feel fear for you mm-hmm. because, you know, you weren't able to make your car payment last month. I'm just, I'm feeling fear for you. And I stop them. I always interrupt right there because I want people to understand you cannot feel emotions for other people. Mm-hmm. You can only feel emotions for yourself. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, right, you cannot cause emotions in other people, Mm. right? So there's this fine line, there's this distinction that we have to draw, which is that situationally something could come up. Mm. I'm using you as an example. That's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Let's say that you didn't make your car payment last Mm -hmm. month, right? And your car is going to get repossessed. Sure. Well, that's a bad situation. Mm -hmm. And I'm really sorry that that's happening for you, right? Mm -hmm. I feel pain about that situation because I can relate to that situation, but I feel pain about that situation. I'm not feeling the pain for you because that would be me assuming your emotional response, Mm. right? You might not feel pain. You might be feeling anger Mm -hmm. or fear because how am I going to get to work, right? Mm -hmm. You you might have a whole nother plethora of human Mm -hmm. emotions over here. Or blame of somebody else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You might have all that and nothing to do with what I'm perceiving, Yeah. right? And this is so common when working with families, especially with addiction, because You've got someone struggling with this disease and what they're doing is essentially passing the buck. Okay. Mm -hmm. All the pain, all the shame, all the guilt that they have, they can get high to alleviate it. Mm -hmm. Guess what? You can't. Come on. Because you're a mom. That's a good point. So you have to deal with it. 
Yeah. You have to, well, you don't have to, but you, you think that you have to yeah. deal with it. Mm -hmm. You have to take ownership of their stuff. Yeah. And so that's really, that's the key um, from the get-go is we got to have that separation because we can't have that separation. We can't really do any other work. Yeah. We're kind of just stuck because mm -hmm. you're still thinking that you're in charge. You're still thinking that you have an effect on them. Um, and, and I love what you mentioned about these, these historic, you know, uh, situations in our lives, mm -hmm. you know, these things that kind of shape us, these, and I was, I always joke, it's kind of cynical, but I say, um, you know, you not going to one of Timmy's t-ball games wouldn't, wouldn't have kept him from getting here. Mm -hmm. He would have gotten here regardless. Mm -hmm. Okay. It had, it had no impact. There's not. A lot of people think it's causation when we're talking about addiction and alcoholism. Like I did this and we got right. divorced and this happened and there, there was this trauma that, and, and, you know, addiction at the same time doesn't occur within a vacuum, but what people have to realize is that certain people have a genetic predisposition to alcoholism and addiction. Mm. So I've treated, and I used to, I used to believe like that before I started working in the industry. I used to believe that, Hey, there's always something, there's always this initial cause mm -hmm. that results in them becoming an addict or an alcoholic. That is not always the case. Right. And it was a huge eye opener for me when I realized that this kid could have the best life. He could have two great parents, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, very affluent upbringing and all that. And he still mm -hmm. goes, he still ends up being an addict. Yeah explain that one to me because mm -hmm. that doesn't fit within the paradigm of my thought process like this victim they're doing this because poor thing happened and now i have to just cope with that exactly sometimes the flesh just really likes getting high yeah exactly yeah and some people don't know that until the first time they do mm -hmm. you know and it, it's it's kind of a depressing thought that i've had before would but it would you know i go back to it i remember the first time i smoked weed mm -hmm. and it's like i just wonder as we do right retrospectively sometimes what would my life look like if i just if i just didn't do it if i just mm -hmm. didn't succumb to the temptation that was put in front of me in that moment yeah you know would i have tried it later would i have just not even ever had any kind of history with it and mm -hmm. then you know it's a dangerous game to play though because sure. had i not done that i probably wouldn't have been doing what i'm doing now mm -hmm. which is helping people so god has this unique way of using our ugly and our sin and yeah. our, our trials and tribulations to benefit people. And we don't even know when that's going to happen. We don't know when that's going to sort of uh, develop. That's so good. That's so good. Do you have any last words that you would say to our family that's walking through having a loved one with an addiction? Yes. Um, go to Al-Anon. <laughs> Al-Anon.org. So it's A-L-A-N-O-N.org. Put in your zip code and go to six meetings, mm -hmm. uh, shop around, go to meetings, buy the big book, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the fourth edition, start reading that, mm -hmm. uh, specifically start reading chapter eight. Um, I, I give this information to all my families and I realize that it's a barrier. You know, people have reasons as to why they don't want to go. They have preconceived notions about AA, but especially believers mm -hmm. more so than non-believers, but I will tell you that the book, the big book is really all the core principles in that book are directly driven from scriptures. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, we're talking James, the book of James, really a lot of it is directly from mm -hmm. that, the mm -hmm. concept. So, um, and it mentions God all throughout the book. Mm -hmm. So when people approach it with this idea of, well, that's not Christian, that's, you know, that's anti-God, that's 
I, I really encourage them to actually read what's in the book mm. and really have their own experience with it. Because mm. when I did that, it shifted again, it shifted my paradigm. And so I, that's my number one recommendation. Number two, don't ever assume that you know it all, mm. right? Because even working in that industry for as long as I did, yeah, every single day was new. Every single day was different. And I learned something every day. I made a mistake almost nearly every day and mm-hmm. assuming something that I didn't know yeah. to be true. So you, you, it's like, never stop learning about this. Mm-hmm. You have to progress. And with that, the final statement with that, I'll say, is that addict's recovery journey is different than the parents or the spouse's recovery journey. That's such a good point. Right? Yeah. Because our success when I worked at the treatment center was not only, okay, the addict or the alcoholic is sober. I mean, obviously that's what we're going for. Mm -hmm. That's important, right? But if we can work on the family Mm -hmm. and we get the family healthy and this knucklehead goes back out and goes back out and goes back out, Mm -hmm. that's still a victory Mm -hmm. because they're no longer participating in the dysfunction and the toxicity of that addiction anymore. That's so good. Right. And then when they are ready, like the prodigal, then they can be brought back into a healthy system I've that's no longer reinforcing. Absolutely. I've yeah. seen it happen. So it's amazing when the family system gets healthy. Yeah. Kind of like with my story, right? Like when everybody, and, it, and it's not that people weren't healthy, but when everybody was united, mm-hmm. and there was a united front. Yeah. I couldn't poke for weak spots anymore. Come on. It, yeah. was, it was game, set, match. I was done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So I think this is so important. We're going to have many more episodes because addiction actually is not my specialty. So that's why I wanted to have somebody that this is more your niche who can help us because addiction rates are on the rise and the opiate crisis is very real. And many people are being touched by it, whether individually or through a family member or a loved one or in your community. I don't want you to feel alone. And I want you to make sure you're reaching out to get support and encouragement or Al-Anon or, um, AA or NA, the different resources and communities out there, you don't have to walk that journey alone. And there's no shame in it. Just because there's something going on in your family, that may be a story of redemption. And it may be something that's really beautiful. If you bring it in the light and you walk it out, we, the last thing we want from this episode is that you would feel shame or bad, or like we messed up as parents or siblings, but rather to say, okay, Lord, this is where we're at. And now let's walk it out with community, with support and recognize what are the ways I might be disabling my family member, whether through a lack of grace and mercy in the relationship side, but then also trying to allow and enable things because you feel like that's grace and mercy, but it's actually allowing them to stay in that addiction. And you're kind of funding some of that or allowing them to manipulate you into lowering your boundaries. So thank you, Satchel, for being our guest today. And we are super excited to hear from you guys. If there's anything specific you want to hear from, don't hesitate to reach out and we will tailor episodes to your needs. Love you guys. Bye. Hey friends, thanks for listening. We would love for you to get plugged in with the Unlock You community. So follow the links below and stay up to date with upcoming content, events, and groups. We are here to invest in you and tailor episodes around your interests. Post comments, and hey, if there are any specific topics you'd like to hear about, let us know so we can strategically build content that is meaningful to you. And will you share this podcast so we can invest into more amazing people? Be sure to hit subscribe so we can see you for the next episode.